The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. 4. See? Nice. We are awake today. All right. That was, I was just testing you. I was just testing you. All righty. Ephesians chapter 4. I've been warned that we have a litany of announcements. Let's see what we got here today. Huddle groups are meeting throughout the valley tonight. They'll be continuing on in the series on the explicit gospel with Matt Chandler. So make sure you get plugged into one of those. Um, just our small groups, fantastic way to meet people and to really dive deeper into some of the things uh, um, that, uh, that, that either we teach here or in this particular case, going through a series by Pastor Matt Chandler uh, with regards to the explicitness of the gospel. And what I mean by that is like what really is the gospel? and what is all the junk that gets added to it and how does that stuff play out in our life. It's a phenomenal series. I'm sure those of you that have been going through it are really enjoying your time in there. It's super good. So uh, make sure you find one of those groups and jump in. I think we only have a couple more sessions left in that and then we'll actually be going into a whole nother series. The huddle groups are gonna take the month of December off around the holidays and then in January, we're gonna be kicking back in again with a new series also by Pastor Matt Chandler that's kind of a follow-up. It's a good uh, part two to, if you will, to the explicit gospel. It's called Recovering Redemption. Um, and honestly, I would say that that's one of the greatest uh, Bible teaching series I've ever seen in my life. So make sure you get plugged in by then. Um, really excited. We'll keep you guys posted as that's coming up. Uh, second announcement, Friday the 20th at 7 o'clock at the Hub, there is a gathering of the ladies. The gals are getting together and Kay Culp is speaking. I'm going to guess that she's talking about CASA. Yeah, there we go. So Kay works with the uh, families that are advocates for foster kids in the Valley. So uh, um, that's a, a really, really important topic, a great opportunity to get involved. So gals, make sure you show up Friday the 20th at 7 o'clock. Uh, number three, high school thanks, it's not Thanksgiving, this is thanks living. Aren't we Christians creative? Um, thanks living overnighter, Saturday the 21st. You guys are going to be spending the night at the hub, Jeremy, is that right? That's right. So a uh, high school overnighter, um, pray for Jeremy and his volunteers. Uh, number four, Thanksgiving baskets. Uh, if you're helping us out with the Thanksgiving uh, basket thing, we need you to bring your food in no later than next Sunday. Um, I don't think it's too late to jump in on that. Check with the information table if you would. There's probably a flyer that has all the stuff that you can get, um, and we would love to have your help on that. Um, we're, just, we're providing uh, Thanksgiving baskets for families all throughout the valley and would love your help. So food, bring your food in next week. What week? Next week, all right. Uh, and then number five, flip side of 50, you're having a Dutch lunch today at noon at Wild River Brewing and Pizza. Um, it is a, uh, and then you have another thing coming up. So lunch is today at noon at Wild River. That's over here on 99 near the, uh, across from Jasper's. I think you guys know where that's at. And then you're having a white Christmas at, no, you're going to see white Christmas. Is that correct? Yes, going to see together White Christmas at the Criterion on December 12th. So you got to sign up for that one by uh, November 22nd because they got to get the tickets and all that kind of stuff in advance. So uh, if you're on the flip side of 50, I'm just curious, is 50 also on the flip side of 50? We do allow 50-year-olds in the group. Oh, you can be married to someone over 50. It's like a green card. You get in if you're married to someone else. All right. We'll call that a gray card. That's what we'll call that. So, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Dang it. Uh, the words come out, you can't keep them in. 
story of my life. Uh, anyway, so um, I don't know if that's it or not, but I'm going to stop talking now and just while I'm behind. <laughs> Let's go to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Bottom line is lots of stuff going on. Stop by the information table, heritagefellowship.net. You can find out about all that stuff. Um, but let's commence with the serious stuff, maybe. We're going to be in Ephesians 4 today. And uh, let's open up in, uh, in prayer, shall we? Father, we pray that you would just be with us in this time, Lord. Lord, your word, you promised that you were sending a helper, a comforter to come alongside and to help us. And your word teaches, Lord, that your Holy Spirit opens our spirit, opens our minds to be able to understand the things of the spirit. And so, Lord, we understand that to mean that if you don't show up this morning, then we're wasting our time. We need you to teach us. My words are horribly inadequate without your spirit moving. And so, God, we pray that your spirit combined with your living word would awaken the hearts and minds of us in this room, that we might grow in a greater understanding of you, who you are, your grace, your gospel, who we are. And I pray, God, that we would be continued, continually changed, even this morning. Because, Lord, we know that that same helper, your Holy Spirit, comes, Lord, to mold us from glory to glory into the image of your Son. So I pray that, Lord, even in this time spent, humbly bowed before your word in attentive worship of your word. I pray that, Lord, in this time, you would change us more and more into the image of Jesus. Lord, as a church overall, may we look more and more like Jesus with Christ as our head, but as individuals as well, Lord, may you continue to transform us until that day that our faith is made sight. And so, Lord, we pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my King, my Rock, and my Redeemer. In Jesus' holy name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Guys, we're continuing on in the book of Ephesians. Um, here pretty soon we'll be taking a little bit of a break as we're going to do a little bit of an Advent series coming up in December. So we'll be jumping back into Ephesians chapter 5 and whatnot coming in January. But here we're continuing through Ephesians 4. And you may remember, I've said this over and over and over, but repetition is the key to learning. So Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about our identity. In Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul is telling us who we are in Christ, who we were before Christ, what Christ has done, how things have changed because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, and now who we are as a result. And Paul lays it out really clearly. It's a doctrinally heavy passage where he talks really clearly about the reality that we are dead in sin, that we have rebelled against God, and apart from Jesus, without his redemptive work, we are cursed. We are dead in sin. There is Nothing but bad ahead, if you will. But Jesus Christ, understanding, knowing our predicament, he invested himself in us. He injected himself into history. Coming up now into the Christmas season, you'll hear words like incarnation. It means he inserted himself into the problem. And rather than staying back, as so many religions teach, that, that God stays back and waits for us to make our way to him, Jesus instead came into human history. He became man. He walked in flesh just as we are. He lived the life that we could not, perfect, sinless life. But that Jesus Christ then went to the cross, and there as he was on the cross, murdered for something he had not done, 
The Bible teaches that God laid upon him the sins of the world, that, that our guilt, our shame, our trespasses, he endured the punishment that we all deserved and then rose again on that third day where he is now in heaven, alive, not dead, victory over death. He defeated our enemy. And that those who believe in Jesus Christ, who understand who he is, believe in him and in his work to pay the price for our sin, that he is our covering to those we have been adopted into the family of God and we're not the same person anymore. Today's passage is going to be heavy in this. We're different. That we've now been adopted into the family of God. We're children of the King, sons and daughters of God. The Bible even goes so far as to say joint heirs with Jesus Christ himself. It's an incredible reality. And then what Ephesians does is when chapter 4 kicks in, it's making the transition, and today heavy on this transition, that because of who we are, because of what Christ's done, and because of the change in our identity, this is what life looks like now for the believer in Jesus Christ. And Paul today is going to be contrasting that between the, belie- the person who doesn't believe in Christ and those who do, and we're going to see this stark contrast. So this is the transition that's happening in Ephesians 4. And so far, in Ephesians 4, Paul has started out by saying, because of Christ, because of his sacrifice, because of who we are, we are the church, those who believe in Jesus Christ, we are to live in unity. Something we've not been good at historically is the church, amen? You ever wondered why there's a First Baptist Church and a Second Baptist Church, a First Presbyterian and a Second Presbyterian, or why there's even Baptists and Presbyterians to begin with? Because we tend to divide. We tend to disagree on things and separate from one another. We tend to find issues that maybe are not central to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to say, because we disagree here, I'm right, you're wrong, we can't have fellowship, and the history of the church shows tons of divisions. Some healthy, if it's heresy, it's good to divide, amen? There's a, we're not like everyone who just says the name Jesus. That's the, not true. But, but there's tons of division in the history of the church. And even within churches, like even in this church. And I love this church. I love the people of this church. But there's division in here. There's people in this room that won't talk to other people in this room for whatever reason. Hurt feelings, disagreements, so-and-so didn't do this, so-and-so did that. There is division even within this room. It's because we're humans. It's it's human nature. And so Paul, right out of the gate, says, because of what Jesus did, you are to live in unity. You are to be one. You have one God, one Savior, one Spirit. You are one church under the headship of Jesus Christ, and he encourages us to live in 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 humility, but united in Jesus Christ. But in spite of the fact that we are united by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he does say, however, we're diverse. We're very different. It's not, he's not creating clones. He's not, this isn't like, uh, what was that group, the comet came by and they all wore the same clothes and looked the same. This isn't something like that. This is, what was that, Hale Bop? Heaven's Gate, that's what it was. That's not what Jesus is doing. This is not the thing like once you get saved and come into the church, now we all have to become like everyone else. That's conformity. You're gonna hear that word a lot today. It's not about conformity. He's not trying to create a bunch of clones where everyone looks the same. He says, no, no, no. I've created you intentionally and very diverse. 
And of course there's diversity with regards to skin tone, uh, languages, origin, and all these kinds of things. But he even went into, if you remember last week, that we are created diverse even after. I mean, we are given the Holy Spirit and we are given diverse gifts. We're different. Some of you are good at some things. Some of you are good at other things. Some of your personality skews towards these things, some others. And there's all sorts of diversity within the church. But the beauty of it is is that when we are walking in unity with Christ, using our gifts, using the things that God has done in us in the way that God has made us to serve one another rather than looking after ourselves all the time, that there's this growing up that happens. And Paul made it really clear. The purpose of the diversity in the church with regards to spiritual giftings is because the church needs to grow up. That we are born again as spiritual infants and as we serve one another and love one another and learn from one another and repent to one another and are taught by one another, we grow up. Not just individually, but the church as a whole grows up. We start looking more and more like Jesus. Because Jesus is the one whom all the different gifts that we see in Scripture existed in one. Jesus was merciful. Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus did miracles. Jesus did all of these sorts of things. And so as the church comes together with all these different gifts in one body, unified under Christ, and begins to serve one another, we see something of what Jesus did on earth. We become, the Bible would say, a manifestation of Christ. In other words, when the world looks at us, they see Jesus. And so this is the goal, that this is the diversity that we have. And that the understanding being, though, that because we are told right away by Paul, who even uses the word us, you're talking about the guy that wrote most of the New Testament, he's saying we grow up. That means that we're all in progress. So we don't have to expect perfection from one another. We can have grace towards one another. When we see immaturity in the church, we can go, well, he's still a baby, but he's growing. And when we see immaturity in ourselves, we can understand that those are things that God's pointing out in our own life that he wants to grow us up out of. That we weren't saved to stay the way that we are. God wants to grow us. And so by the grace of God, I believe he's doing that. And so now, having said all this about unity in the church and we're all together, then Paul goes into this section, which is really sort of the real pivot, if you will, on this, now we live like this and how different we are from the way we were before Christ. So Paul says in verse 17, Ephesians 4, 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. These are strong words, right? Paul was not a, uh, what's the word, seeker sensitive, people pleaser. Nope, Paul's saying it like it is, hard words. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to hardness of heart. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity but that is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness 
It's Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Now, maybe you guys have heard a phrase before. You ever heard this phrase, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. You know what the, the history, the origin of that phrase is? It comes from church history. There's a story where um, St. Augustine, one of the great early church fathers, a great thinker, incredible theologian, was going to Milan to visit another pastor that he had known from his days in Rome and went to visit their church. And when he got there, he noticed everything was different than what he expected. A lot of the practices of the church there in Milan were completely different from some of the practices that they had been taught and were practicing in Rome. They, didn't, they, they weren't fasting on Saturdays the way the church at that time did. A lot of the different things were just different. And so when he came to the guy, the pastor there, and he was saying, hey, what's going on? Why aren't you doing the things that we do? You're not, you're not walking in the things that we've learned. You're not running your church in the way that we've learned to do church. And, and he had a, a comment back. He said, well, when I am in Rome, I fast on Saturdays. When I am in Milan, I do not. So follow the custom of the church where you are. And that's the route that got changed over the years into the phrase, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. This guy was saying, hey, our church here looks differently. We do it differently because we're not in Rome. And what we do is, well, we alter our behavior based on where we are, and more specifically in this case, based even on the people that we're around. It's a statement about conformity. And that statement and that phrase to this day, this is what it means. It means, hey, wherever you are, blend in. If you're in Rome, if you're in Medford, wherever you are, the people around you, be like them. Do what they do, talk like they talk, act like they act, like what they like, whatever you do, don't stand out, be like them. It's about conformity. Now, practically, that's terrible advice. If you were to tell young people today, hey, wherever you are, just be like everyone else, it's terrible career advice, is it not? I mean, usually it's those who stand out from the crowd that are the most successful and make the biggest impact in the world around them. But, but even on an even more basic practical level, just because there's a whole bunch of people doing something around you doesn't mean they have any clue what it is that they're doing. And so to conform to that can be really dangerous. I fish. I'm going to use a fishing example. Uh, my father-in-law, Vern Blair, we used to go opening season before the lake stinks like it does now. But before, it used to be good. We used to go early season every year to Diamond Lake, and we'd go fly fishing up there for these big rainbows. But a couple of years ago, it started to change. It's not as good as it used to be. And one year, we were up there, and, and having used to catch tons of fish, we were catching nothing. And no one on the lake is catching anything. And so we're scattered all over just trying to find fish anywhere. Maybe it's this spot. No, nothing. Maybe it's this spot. And what we started noticing is in this one area, there was a boat. And then a little later, another boat saw that boat there and kind of came and hung out near that boat. Well, now you got two boats together. Everybody else isn't catching fish. Well, there's two boats together. I wonder what that is. And so another boat would come. And then another boat would come. And then another boat would come. Next thing you know, there's like a flotilla of boats out in this one area because everyone thinks the crowd's there. They must know where the fish is. And the reality is no one caught anything. They're all sitting there. It's the blind leading the blind, just sitting there dunking worms in the water or whatever, totally wasting their time. Literally, like I had binoculars. I'm watching them. No bent rods. No one's catching anything. And everyone was just, every boat that got on the water, you could watch them. The boat would get on the water and instantly drive straight to where the crowd was because they must know something. So, we had opportunity there. Well, this is where the crowd is, and we're not catching anything here. We must be wrong. They must be right. We should abandon all that we know and all that we think and go follow the crowd. Well, to do that would have ruined our day. 
So instead, we just started thinking, well, what do we know? It's spring. Trout spawn, rainbow trout spawn in the spring. And they don't spawn in mud. They look for gravel to spawn by. So are there any parts of this lake that might have gravel, gravel bottoms? Maybe they're not in the normal feeding beds because they're already moving to the spawn beds. Well, on the north shore, which is the total opposite in that anyone seems to fish over there, there's a whole area. Did I say the north shore? I'm giving away my secrets. The east shore. On the east shore... There was this area of gravel that I knew about, and I was like, well, let's go over there and just see. So we motored all the way across the lake, freezing cold, rain, miserable, already thinking about just calling it. We get over to that side, and we come to like literally like three feet of water, and there is just fish everywhere. Big fish everywhere. And we start catching these fish by sight. Like, I want to catch that one. And we would cast to them and catch them. And we're killing it. And so here's what happened, though. Another boat would come by, and I'd be like, Vern, put your rod down. <laughs> no joke. And so the boats would come by, and they, would, they literally, they were like, man, sure is slow today. And we're like, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, one of those days. The boat would get by, uh, another one. And we just killed it all day long. Now. Had we gone with the crowd, we would have had a miserable day, freezing to death. But sometimes we really do take that philosophy into our lives. We can feel completely outnumbered. We can feel like the crowd knows something and we feel like we have to fit in with everyone else because to step up and to stand out means we're not gonna be successful in this area. We've gotta go where all these people are. It's practically bad advice. It's spiritually horrible advice because the scripture is full of words saying to conform to the world is a fatal mistake. But nevertheless, the temptation and the, the, the pressures of this philosophy are massive, are they not? I mean, on our kids, on our young people, but even on us today, it is difficult, it's really hard to wanna to separate yourself from the pack. It takes courage, it takes a strong belief on what it is you're doing because once you separate from the pack, man, you're out there, you stand out, everyone's looking and there is a human tendency, there just is for us to be pressured to and to wanna conform to those that are around us, to wanna just fit in. There's a human pressure to that. We see this in scripture all over the place. I mean, you see Adam and Eve going, I wanna be like God. Not content in their own standing, they wanna be like someone else they see around them. And you see this play out through scripture. You see the people of Israel when God was to be their king, they're looking at the nations around them and they're like, we want a king like everyone else does. And so they reject God, they reject his leadership and they're demanding, give us a king like everyone else. You even see the apostles, their leadership style and the way that they're constantly jostling for position with one another throughout the scriptures and Jesus calls them out on it. And what is it he says when he calls them out? He says, hey, you see You've seen, you're watching, you see how the leaders of this world, they lord over one another, they're trying to get position one after the other, they're constantly fighting to climb this ladder, and what does he say? For you, it will not be so. You're going to be different. In my kingdom, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. We are completely different, and you are going to stand out apart from them. You're not gonna be like them. You're gonna be in this world, but you're not of this world. You're not gonna live according to this world's principles. You're not gonna walk like this world walks. You're not gonna do the things that this world does because you are completely different. In fact, Paul here in this particular passage wants us to understand something more specific. Let me say it this way. He's not just saying be different because this is tied in with Ephesians one through three and our identity. This is what Paul's saying in this passage. Christians, and in this room, if you are a Christian, 
If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you trust Jesus Christ as the redeemer and sacrifice to cover your sin, then Paul is saying to you, Christian, listen, not just be different. This is what Paul's saying. You are different. Whether you're acting like it or not, you're different. You can pretend to be like the rest of the world. You can walk like the rest of the world. You can do the things and try to fit in with the rest of the world. But your identity is you are different. Christians stand out. We're designed to stand out. I mean, think of Christ's teachings. You are a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Put it under a bush, oh no. That's what Jesus is even teaching. Following Jesus means you're going to stand out. It means you are swimming against the flow to conform to those around you. It doesn't work that way. We have a different calling, a different purpose, different motives. We are different. And Paul is in this passage calling us to live these things out because of who we are. But he starts in a really specific place. He says, it all starts in how you think. Now, usually we don't think of Christianity as being uh, intelligent, or no, that's not the right word. Um, uh, <laughs> that sounds terrible, didn't it? <laughs> Forget that. Erase that. Back up, start over. We don't think of it as being, being um, more a, 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 a religion of the mind in its core. We tend to, at least our approach to it in this culture especially, we approach it more as an emotion-based thing. I mean, think of most of the church services that you've been to, even ones here. Many of the church services that are aimed at getting people to become Christians, they're usually aiming at emotion more than they are in, in their, their knowledge, their, your mind, your head. And so you have the teaching, but the goal of the teaching is to grab someone's heart, to get them to be moved, the passage would say. And then as the pastor's closing up, the worship leader comes on and he starts on the guitar. You know that? starts playing that soft music because music does affect our emotions, does it not? And so it's softening our heart, the lights come down, and then the plea, come, and all these things. And then we sing these songs that can be emotional, though, though they may be theologically accurate. I'm not trying to throw that under the bus, but I'm just saying the overall goal tends to be towards emotion. But Paul here starts completely different. And, and what Paul wants us to do is understand not just who we are, but this is what he's saying. He's saying, think. You have to know something. Christianity, in its core, is information we have to know about a person who did a specific thing on our behalf. It's not a feeling. It's knowledge of Jesus. It's knowledge of what he did. And it's hopefully the Spirit awakening our spirit to understanding these things that we might respond to it. But it's not an emotional movement. If our faith was based purely on emotion, we would be all over the place, wouldn't we? I mean, I, I love what, our, I love what um, Seth just said to us as we were about to open up worship this morning, that if worship was just about emotion, man, sometimes it's just hard to be emotional. Sometimes you're tired. Sometimes you're frustrated. Sometimes you're mad. And it's difficult to get into that mood. Most of us can't just flip a switch and our emotion changes. But we can think. We can think about things. We can understand things. We can wrap our mind around things. Even our prayer is that the songs that we choose here, Pastor Sam spends a ton of time going over the music that we do, not just for, oh, that sounds good, not just, oh, that would move us, but what do these lyrics say? Because in the end, the thing that matters more than anything is what is it we're saying? What is it we believe? 
Because we could sing some incredibly moving songs about garbage. There's a lot of them out there. So we have to know something. And Paul says that he's attacking what people know. And he does this, think about the context. Look what he says in verse 17 through 19. And think about where Paul is. I say and testify in the Lord. In other words, this is, this is how God sees things, not just me. That's what he's saying. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that's in them. Due to the hardness of their heart, they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Listen, where's Paul? When Paul talks about, and when he's using the word Gentiles in this case, he's talking about unbelievers, people that don't believe in Jesus. Where's Paul? He is in the epicenter of all philosophy. You're talking about the Greek culture, Greek philosophers that to this day in our school system, the people who taught in this time area or this time era, uh, the world still esteems as some of the greatest thinkers and philosophers in the history of the world. And Paul's been to Athens. Paul's been to these places. He understands, he's seen, he's debated some of these people and yet Paul would say they are futile in their thinking. Their minds are darkened. They're ignorant. The smartest people on earth, they're ignorant. And more specifically, what he's saying here is that, look, the, the philosophers of this day prided themselves on their ability to think. Their mind was the thing that was going to deliver them from the difficulties of their day. I mean, much Greek philosophy at that time said there's matter, as in our bodies, the physical world, but then there's this idea that through thought, we can now achieve, we can move beyond matter and we can achieve and become something else rather than this junk that we are mired down in now. And they literally believed that their minds and their thought processes was the tool that was gonna deliver them from all these things. And Paul's saying the very thing that they're looking for for their salvation is fundamentally flawed and broken and has no hope. The greatest thinkers the world has ever recognized, he says, they are flawed in their thinking and they're dark in their understanding because everyone apart from God is flawed in their thinking. Young people, listen to me. Everyone apart from God has a massive flaw in their thinking and understanding that cannot be overcome any other way. Let me, let me help you think through some of these kind of things. This is how Paul kind of breaks this whole thing down. This is what we know about everyone who is without God. This is the progression that Paul brings, breaks down. Number one, they have hardened their hearts. Someone who, the Romans tells us that, Paul, that God has revealed himself to people. And so when Paul says here that these people have hardened their hearts, verse 18, due to the hardness of their heart, what it means is, is that Knowing or having presented to them who God is, they have hardened their heart. They, the words used there, it actually translates heart of stone. So when the truth of God comes to them, their, stone, their heart is a heart of stone. It's unable to receive. You know, Jesus used the analogy of the farmer throwing seed out onto the ground. And one of the places he said that does not produce fruit is when the seed falls on that stony ground. It doesn't find fertile soil to grow. And so too, Paul is saying people without God, the Gentiles that these people used to be that are in the world around them, they start off this major flaw is that they have hardened their heart harder than stone to the reality of God. 
And that leads to, in the progression, a darkened understanding. He says in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. So this is what that means. No matter how brilliant their mind may be, no matter how complex and deep and brilliant their thought process may be, it's broken because it's not coming from a truthful core. Let me explain it this way. I don't care what biologist out there you pick, the world's greatest scientist and biologist, he might know everything about every plant, every animal, every cell, all of those things. But if he doesn't know God, his thinking is automatically darkened and flawed because he has no knowledge of the very thing that created and designed the very animals he's giving his life to learn. And so you cannot be complete in your knowledge without an understanding of who God is. It's just absolutely impossible. And so their understanding becomes dark and they're missing some very important things that, are, that, that really enlighten and bring light and understanding to everything going on in the world. And that leads to alienated from life. And I don't mean like life in general. I mean God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God is Life. He is the author of life, the sustainer of life, the creator of life. And when we have rejected God and alienated ourselves from God, we have alienated ourselves from life. And so listen, that's why what happened in Paris this week happened. You go, how could someone be so callous that they could drive up to a street side cafe, pull out a gun and just start mowing people down. How can someone have no respect for life whatsoever? It's because people have alienated themselves from life. They are darkened in their understanding. They, they're buying into things that trump the very life that God has given these people and so their call to a false God, to a demonic cult trumps the very life that God has put into some people sitting on a parkside cafe. And so you, this is what makes everything possible, alienation from God. There's no more boundaries. What, I don't need to respect anyone else. Why, why should I? If there's no God, if it's just survival of the fittest, if the strongest survives, then why in the world would I waste my time worrying about anyone on a street side cafe? Why would I give a rip about a homeless person? You know what? Why do any of that? Let's just get rid of all of them. Let's mow them all down. It'll solve all sorts of economic issues. Let's just do it. This is where darkness comes from. It, it can be political darkness. It can be personal darkness, sexual darkness. It can be all sorts of things. But when you have alienated yourself from not just the source of life, but the author and designer of life, then you go all sorts of perverted ways because you're not in line with the designer who created us in that way. And listen, we have to understand this too. Listen, put ISIS and all that's an extreme example. Put that on the side. Let's just talk about the average person you see in your own day-to-day -day life doing ungodly things, whatever that might be, drug users, prostitutes, whatever the case may be. Our nature can be, as Christians even, our nature can be to see people doing certain things and we freak out at the thing that they're doing. We see a prostitute on a street corner or we hear about someone who's committed murder or a child molestation or something like that and we freak out at that issue and we have to be careful because our tendency can be to turn towards the action and go, we have to fix this. What are we gonna do about this? And so we can enact laws. We can make prostitution illegal. 
That'll take care of it. That'll get the women off the street corners and the men off the street corners. Let's do that. And those are good things from a civil and just in terms of just having a good society. Those are good things. But do they fix it? Of course not. Of course not. Then Craigslist comes out. So Craigslist comes out and you had people literally selling prostitutes and selling sexual services on Craigslist like crazy. So Craigslist though, they're kind of smart. They're trying to grow. They're trying to have a legitimate business even though their website still looks so JV, but that's, they don't matter. That's the brilliance of their model, I guess. So they're just going along and they find out all this stuff's going on. We got to deal with this. So let's shut it down. So they, they take that area from their website that people were using, that, that classified area that people were using to sell prostitution and all that throughout the world and they shut it down. Does that fix it? No. Backpage.com. And then there's another one. And then there's another. Our tendency can be to see sinful actions in people and to want to attack the actions. But Paul's saying, you got to understand, these people are just living out of their own identity. It's, it's not an action issue. It's a heart issue. So when an unbeliever does something that we would consider appalling, we shouldn't be surprised. They're just being who they are. When someone who has rejected God, rejected God's moral code, rejected God's word, rejected all of those kind of things, and then we see them go do something that's in opposition to God's law, you should not be shocked. And and to focus all of our efforts on the issue, on the action, is to miss the point that there is a heart inside all of those people that needs to be dealt with. And so I'll throw a guilt trip on all of us, myself included. How many of us, when we see what happened in Paris, our initial reaction is bomb them? Me, me, why are we still here? Give everyone guns, let's go. How many of us pray for them that their heart would change? How many of us pray for them that God would do a work in their heart? You go, that's unrealistic. This is Paul writing here. Paul was ISIS. Paul was a terrorist intent on murdering all Christians just like ISIS wants to intent on wiping Christianity off the face of the earth just like ISIS wants to. And when Jesus came and touched his heart, everything changed. And so I'm not saying we ignore the issues, man. I'm, I'm ready to go do butt kicking like everyone else. When I see that stuff, it's not okay. And we need to stand up for the weak and we need to deal with all of that, definitely. But the core of the issue in the wickedness that's in the world, it is a heart issue in men that have rejected God. The best thing that can happen is that God would awaken their hearts to understanding of who he is and call them to repentance. Amen? But that trickles down even to how we raise our own kids and how we lead our youth group because we can focus so much on behavior modification. I wanna raise kids that don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, instead of going, my number one priority is to make sure my kids know Jesus and then trust Jesus to do the heart work. This is what we're called to do. And so Paul's saying that's the breakdown. He goes from a hardened heart, darkened understanding, alienated from life, and then the final step is given up to impurity. The Bible teaches this that God will one day judge unbelievers. Those who have rejected God one day will face absolute judgment before God, and it's literally going to be hell to pay when that day comes. But God also judges the sinner now. Not so much in a face-to-face condemnation sort of way, but by when someone has rejected God long enough, at a certain point, God turns them over to their sin. One of the ways God judges sinners is allowing them to continue in the sin that they're in. 
allowing them to experience the emptiness, allowing them to experience the pain and to understand that now they have been given over and these people become absolutely imprisoned to the sin that's in their world. And this is the way things are. We see this entire breakdown in Romans 1. I think we have the text for this. Paul gives us the same order in different words that actually a little easier to understand in some ways. He says in verse 20, for his, speaking of God, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Let me tell you guys something. The end result, Paul says, of all this is futility. The, the, the word he uses in Ephesians 4, he says that they are in the futility of their minds. That word futility there in, in the Greek, it means useless and unable to achieve lasting results. Now imagine that. Paul's saying this to the philosophers of that day. I know they're smart. I know they're doing a lot of work. I know they're writing papers. I know they're doing all these things. But they are trapped in the futility of their mind. It is useless. I got some good news for you that maybe will alleviate a little bit of pressure that sometimes we can feel when we watch the news. Especially when we watch maybe the political unravelings in our world or social changes in the climate that we live, live in today. Christianity is not in trouble. Can, I just, can you just understand that and know that? Christianity's not in trouble. We're not losing the culture war. We're not in danger of extinction. We can look at the things going on around us and we feel like, man, all the professors in the schools around us are teaching against Christian beliefs. All of the culture is teaching against Christian beliefs. All the news channels, all the TV channels, we are so small, we'll never be able to make up from this. It's just a matter of time before we're totally outnumbered and in trouble. And I'm just here to tell you, this has always been the way of the church. It's always been that way. That's exactly what many of the Greek philosophers in this day were teaching. That's exactly what higher learning at that point taught. We can sometimes feel like Christians are the ones marginalized as being kind of dumb, ignorant, and backwoods. And those smart people are figuring those things out and they're going to leave us behind. And yet year after year, decade after decade, century after century, Christianity still exists. The word of God still holds up. How often has science changed even in the last hundred years, much less thousand, and yet the Bible is still true. And honest to goodness, man, the church has done best in its times of difficulty. What we're dealing with in our world right now is not that the church is shrinking. It's actually not. The church as a whole in America is actually growing. What's shrinking is the marginal, the ones that are sort of Christian. Because as the culture changes and as everyone in our climate, everyone in the world starts to say, this Christian stuff is closed-minded and wrong, this is how it's right to think. And as that crowd starts to pressure people to come with them, those who truly aren't following Jesus are going to have some decisions to make. There's difficulty. You'll have to pay a price to believe what Jesus teaches. 
And so if you don't genuinely believe who he is, if you have not genuinely been remade and become an actual Christian, then it's no longer advantageous. It used to be advantageous to be a Christian, a good business move to be a Christian, because that's what the culture of kind of our own, especially in the United States, that's what it was like. The church is growing. The marginal sort of Christians that aren't really Christians, that's what's fallen away. We're getting more polarized, absolutely. But that's good for the church because we're designed to stand out. The church is designed to stand out. That's, you can't be a light in the darkness if you're not surrounded by darkness. And so in the culture that we live in now, the church is being primed to do amazing things for the grace of God, or through the grace of God in the society around us. Doesn't mean it'll be fun. Doesn't mean it'll be comfortable. But the church is not in trouble. What, what did Jesus say about the church? The very gates of hell will not prevail against this church. So why are we worried about the gay rights movement or ISIS or whatever else? If the very gates of hell don't have a shot, we are not in trouble. God is sovereign and God's will will happen. Amen? Amen. But Paul says to these guys, they are caught in futility because in the end, it doesn't matter what you know if you don't know Jesus. In the end, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how great your philosophy was. It doesn't matter how smart you were. It doesn't matter all the things that you accomplished because if you are alienated from the source of life, you will go the way of everyone else that has ever gone that way. And that is ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It doesn't matter. He says in both Romans 1 and in Ephesians, it's futile, it's meaningless, it's worthless in the end. But, Paul says, verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says, hey, but for you, this is who you were and this is who they are, but for you, something changed. Something is different. Something is new. And he's encouraging us to walk in the newness of our life in Christ, to put off this old way and to put on this new way of thinking. Understand who you are. Understand what's changed and live according to these things. A lot is new because of what Jesus did. You say, well, what are they? Well, we got a few of them. Number one, in Christ, we have a new birth. In Christ, we have a new birth. We've been, the Bible tells us, born again. It's not like changing or adjusting. It's a complete do-over. We have been born again. Everything's different. Even in, in the Bible, a lot of, in a lot of the Old Testament passages, when someone has an actual encounter with God that changes their life, you even see sometimes their names change. They'll change their names from Abram to Abraham, or you see Saul go to Paul. You see these names change because they're a completely different person. It's a do-over. You have been born again. Number two, you have a new Lord. The Bible teaches that before Christ, we are actually submitted to the lordship of the Lord of this earth, and that is Satan himself. The Bible talks a lot about what Satan does. That Lord does not exist to make your life better. That Lord is not a king that's looking out for the interests of his subjects. The Bible actually teaches that that Lord is like a lion prowling around looking for someone that he can consume and destroy. But in Christ, we have a new Lord. 
Our new Lord lives, loves, forgives, serves, gifts, empowers, cares, walks with you, and he is eagerly awaiting the day that he wraps his arms around yours physically as well. We have a new Lord, a Lord who humbled himself for your best interests when he came to this earth. A Lord who doesn't domineer over us in the way that the rest of the world often does. A Lord who humbled himself to serve us in our greatest area of need. We have a new Lord. Number three, we have a new heart. The Bible speaks of the heart as being sort of the, the epicenter, the center of our identity. And we have this new heart. When we've been born again, we have a new heart with new desires and new goals and new direction. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. G going back to this idea of if we focus on changing behavior, we miss the whole point. Listen to what he's saying in that verse. He's saying, I'm gonna change your heart first. That's salvation, that's being born again. I'm gonna give you a new heart and that new heart is gonna be the key to you then becoming someone who lives according to the word of God. So if we make all our emphasis as a church or as parents or as teachers or whatever on we want them to walk these things out without actually addressing the core of who they are in Christ to begin with, we're wasting our time and we're setting themselves up, we're setting our children up for something they can't possibly do. God gives us a new heart with new desires. Number four, a new creation. We have been changed so deeply that the Bible calls us a new creation. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Man, Christians are not better people. Amen, Christians? Like, we know this, right? Sometimes we even get saved thinking that's the case. And we think, okay, I'm saved and I'm struggling with some stuff. I'm really glad, though, that I just got saved because it's just a matter of time before I don't struggle with stuff anymore. Uh, Christians that have been walking with Jesus for any length of time, give me an amen if that's baloney. Amen? We still struggle. We still deal with stuff. We absolutely do. Christians are not better people. Christians are not improved people. Christians are brand new people. God is reworking us little by little into a completely new creation. We're not improved, we're remade. Number five, we have a new mind. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as in, to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now listen, don't get arrogant on me here, because I've seen this. Um, I, I've seen this a lot in different areas. Uh, an example is I, I know some different Christian leaders and teachers that their focus is dealing with um, combating the evolution uh, evolution movement and teaching and philosophy. And so they'll put videos out and teachings and they'll go to debates and they'll debate people about evolution and they'll talk science and they'll do all these things. And, and some of the, not everyone, but some of the, one, the ones I'm thinking of in particular and some of the best known ones, oh, I cannot stand them because they come off so incredibly arrogant. 
And they can talk at other people like, you guys are just a bunch of morons that don't understand anything, but I have all the understanding and I know everything. And it becomes this really kind of puffed up thing. Listen, being a Christian does not make you better than everyone else around you. What it means is God has opened your heart to understand things you couldn't possibly understand on your own if it wasn't for the grace of God in your life. So why would we boast about those things? Why would we be arrogant about something we didn't do? Why would we be cocky as we talk to other people? Instead, we should understand, but by the grace of God, so go I. That that person is no different than you apart from the grace of God in your life. But we have a new mind by God's grace so that we can understand the things of God. That's, that's why when you see people that don't know Jesus, I mean, how many of you before have brought someone to church before and you, you've heard the pastor lay out the gospel so clearly and you just knew, oh man, they're gonna do it now. They've, he, they understand it, they've heard everything and the guy's like, nah, I just don't get it. And it happens all the time because unless God does a work and unless people are open to allowing God to do that work in their heart. It's, it's only the spirit that enlivens that. And so instead of like trying to debate people down and make them feel like idiots where then they hate Christians for being so cocky, instead we would be better off starting to actually pray for their heart that God might till the soil of their soul so that seed actually finds fruit. And we should be humble and gracious that God would ever look down on such as me to do that for me. Amen? Man, The longer you walk with Jesus, the more humble you should get, or you don't really understand what you're doing. Uh, That's a whole other thing. Number six, a new love. Because of the love of God, we have a new capacity to love one another. We We can love one another even when one another is driving one another absolutely crazy. Amen, one another's? Right? I mean, there's all sorts of people in this room. And I can love all of you without liking any of you. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? That sounds bad. But, but this is the reality. In, in a lot of the world, we tend to, it's that flock mentality, gravitate to the, towards those that we are like and have interest with and enjoy being with. But because of the grace of God poured out on undeserving sinners like us, we now have the ability and power to love people that drive us crazy or even love people that don't love us in return. This is because of God's work in our life. Number seven, we have new desires. We desire God's will in our life instead of our own. We desire to please God rather than ourselves. Instead of deciding our own direction in life, we want to hear what God has to say about these things because we understand who he is and our purpose in his life. We desire the things of heaven more than the things of earth. Number eight, we've been hitting this one hard lately. We don't need to spend a ton of time on it, but we have a new community. We're not just citizens of heaven, but we're part of a body of Christ here. Um, And and this doesn't even just play out within the walls of this church. It's crazy how you can leave here and go to Uganda. Like, I, I I don't know what you guys know about Uganda, but this right here is not normal in Uganda, okay? You don't see a lot of blonde haired, blue eyed guys walking around in Uganda. I stick out like a sore thumb in Uganda. But I can walk into that church building in there, and I'm not joking. And those of you that have come to Uganda with us before, you've experienced this. You're home thousands of miles away on the other side of the earth with people you have nothing in common with apart from Jesus and you find out your family. You're singing worship songs. You're not even singing the same language. Honestly, don't even have a clue what it is I'm singing. I'm just trying to move along and yet worshiping together with people and realizing this is family. I have a new community because of Christ. Number nine, 
we have a new power. God gives us the Holy Spirit, the indwelling power of God. The, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives to help us repent from sin, to grow into the image of Christ, to minister to one another, empowers us to love and serve, and enables us to live holy lives, to obey God in general. Number 10, we have a new freedom. This is a good one. I want you to think about this one. We can walk in freedom. Now, there's two ways of looking at that. Number one, we are no longer in bondage to sin. We are no longer under Satan's dominion. We can walk away from the sin that dominates our life in so many ways. We are free, amen? But here's another one that we don't think enough about that I think is even greater, is that we have freedom with God. Theologians have a phrase, it's called quorum Deo. Some of you may have heard that before. Quorum Deo, this is what it means. It means living in the face of God. So, so think about Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, what was the first thing they did? Cover themselves from one another and hide from God. And God comes in, and they are guilty, amen? They're guilty. And God comes in, he's, where are you? They are hiding from God. And then when they come before God, they're not even, you can just picture them, can't you? No way looking, oh, it's him, it's her. That, like, there's all this finger pointing and there's all this mess going on. But listen, because of Jesus Christ, we can live in the face of God. Meaning, we have the freedom to come before the King of Kings and the Creator of the world, regardless of the junk that we've walked in yesterday, regardless of our failures. I mean, how many of you, and don't raise your hand, <laughs> but did any of you come to church this morning and you found it really difficult to sing and worship because of stuff that's going on in your life? Do you like fight with your spouse on the way here and then get out of the car and do that blessings on you and all that kind of fake garbage that we do? You know what I mean? So when that kind of stuff happens and you come into church and they start singing all the worship songs and, and Seth drives you crazy because he says, lift your hands, and you're like, a jerk. It's hard, right? Because our, we are religious by nature. And we feel like, I can't worship because of what I did. I need to go do some things. I need to clean myself up a little bit first before I come before God. Or I need to, I need to have a good few days before I can go to morning worship or, or whatever the case may be. But the Bible teaches us that our sin has been removed, past, present, and future, and that we can boldly go to the throne room of grace. We have quorum Deo, the freedom to live in the face of God himself because of the sacrifice of Jesus. That's huge to have that kind of freedom before God. Man, I challenge you, if you've never considered that, spend some devotion time on that this week. See what that opens up in your heart. And then number 11, and there's more, but we'll stop here. Number 11, we have new life. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Even as we die, we are being made new. And there is a day coming when none of the struggles and suffering and failures we experience in this world will have any more hold on us anymore. We're not there yet. The Bible tells us, though, that when we see him, we will be like him. God is doing a work right now. He's doing a work in your heart. He's doing a work in eternity. He's preparing a place for us. And there is a day coming. Look, I don't want to be like everyone else. Talking about this whole crowd mentality and gravitating towards anyone else. I don't want, I love you. I don't want to be like you. You're getting old. You're breaking down. Everyone out there is dying. I want to be different. 
I want to see, I see Jesus who's conquering death. I see Jesus where one minute he's in this room, one minute he's over here. I mean, I see the things that Jesus did after the resurrection, and then he says, uh, you're going to be like me? You guys want that? I want to fly. Maybe. I, I want to, you ever see tigers on National Geographic and think, I want to hug one? I don't recommend it today. But listen, God is doing a whole new work. He's not just changing life in us. He's going to change everything around us. Creation will no longer fight against us. I mean, the beauty in the world that we see now pales in comparison to what it actually should look like with sin out of the way. I want to experience that. The Jeff that hurts every time he runs that wakes up with cracks and pops in his joints. I'm tired of that, Jeff, already. I turned 43 this week. I'm ready to wave the white flag. I'm done with it. Like, I, if it's Brian Regan, my favorite comedian, has a comment. You get to a certain age and things hurt and you realize it's just gonna hurt you now for the rest of your life. Like, that thing's now broken forever. I'm already over that. I want something new. I wanna be different. And the Bible teaches that because of Jesus Christ, we can live in the face of the one who is the author and creator and sustainer of life who is making all things new. You might feel like a minority from time to time today. That will not always be the case. And sometimes you can feel like everyone else has everything figured out and not you, but the Bible assures you, have faith, keep walking. We've been through this before. Oh, Jeff, you don't understand. There's new science coming out. What if they, what if they, hey, have faith. God's the author of science too. Have faith, keep walking, trust God. But don't try to be like them. You're new. You're different. God's changed you. Be that guy. Be that guy. And for the rest of you, you need to be that guy. Here's, here's one of the big reasons why we need to live that way, church. If the church is the manifestation, the image of Jesus Christ to the world around us, what do we now understand even just reading through these things? People don't need behavior changes. People don't need new laws to change morality. People don't need all those kind of things. People need Jesus. And guess what? We have him. And so the more we walk like them, the more we live like them, the less they see him. They need us to stand out. We are a city on a hill. People need to be able to see Jesus in our life. Even in our failures, when we blow it, to, for them to see that we can humbly repent and that we can then just go right back to walking with Jesus so that we can live in the very face of God, that quorum Deo, people need to understand that because some people have been so turned over into their sin, they feel like they can never come back to God, but you get a chance to model repentance and God's accepting love. People need Jesus, and God has chosen his church, not the building, but the people, as the means by which many people out there are going to see and learn who Jesus is. So we are different, and the world needs us to be different. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I'm encouraging you. We're going we're gonna to cut things short here. We're going to be all done. I'm going to ask you guys to stand in just a moment, but there's going to be some people around, some, some elders and whatnot, huddle leaders around just to be available to pray with people. If you don't know Jesus, if you've never met Jesus, please, please. The Bible teaches so clearly, look, 
Don't walk in, in your own strength, your own mind. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all ways acknowledge him. He'll direct your path. So listen, you've got to know Jesus is real. He lived, he died, he rose again. He is the creator and the sustainer of everything, and he is coming again. And time might be short. It's really easy to watch some of the things going on in the news and think, maybe today, and maybe today. So now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. Stop resisting God. Stop hardening your heart. Stop resisting what you know to be true. And give yourself over to Jesus. He loves you. He will not make a fool of you. And he has such great plans for you. So there's gonna be some people available to be able to pray with you. We just wanna, wanna wrap an arm around you, talk with you about Jesus and invite you into the family and just kinda walk through this life with you. Um, we're not gonna give you Nikes and Puma running suits or any of that kind of stuff like the, what, what were their names again? Hailbot people, Heaven's Gate people. We're none of that, nothing too weird. We're weird, we're not that weird, okay? But, but listen, you need Jesus and you know it. You know it. So stop resisting him. Will you guys stand with me and let's pray. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. God, I pray that that would be the truth for us, Lord. God, will you renew our minds again, Lord? Will you help us, Lord, to see things clearly? And, and I pray, God, that your spirit would just come upon every believer here that we can again see the folly of this world around us, the truth of your word, and that we might walk in confidence with you, Lord. Lord, give us by your spirit the strength and the motivation, Lord, to personify you, to stand out, to resist the temptations of the world that call us to be like everyone else, but Lord, to be able to manifest you, Jesus, in this world around us, to be loving, humble, gracious, kind, patient, to speak the truth, Lord, but to speak it in love. I pray, God, you would grace this church with that. And Lord, for those in this place that have not yet given their lives over to you, that are still resistant to you, Lord, I pray that you would soften their heart that you would remove the heart of stone and give them that heart of flesh. Lord, give them the freedom of surrender. Help them to walk in the joy and freedom, Lord, that comes with knowing you. I pray, God, that you would just do that work. There's so many here. And for the rest of us, Lord, may we spend less time trying to debate people into the kingdom and more time just praying that you would move in their lives. God, for the people in Paris, we, just, we can't help but stop and pray for them as our hearts are broken and we see what went on there. But Lord, you bring beauty from ashes. And so I pray that even now in Paris, your church would be mobilized to stand apart. That people would be drawn, looking for answers, would be drawn to your church, to your people. And that Lord, you would save, not just physically here, but you would save them eternally. And God, we pray, Lord, that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come here, Lord, in Medford, in Paris, and throughout the world, Lord, as it is in heaven. 
God, be with these guys as they walk. I pray, Lord, you would give them the power to walk these things out, that this wouldn't just be some other Bible study that we took in and forget about, but Lord, may we leave this place now chewing on these things, meditating on these things, talking these things over with one another, and I pray, God, you would just affect the way we live as your word comes alive in our hearts. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Remember, guys, huddle group.